Hello boys and girls, sports fans and assorted waifs and strays. It's Den here from Didronomica and today is Monday the 8th of July 2019. Just before the Independence Day holiday over in America, I spoke with Frank Scarbo. Frank, as some of you will know, is a top quality analyst. He's a great consultant, also a good buddy as well. Known him for many years. And most recently, he's been talking a great deal about the build versus buy discussion. It's a perennial one among us in the tech industry world, but Frank is seeing change in the emphasis moving away from buying solutions to one where build is preferred. Let's get on with the discussion. Your build or buy thing, that's really, really interesting. <laughs> How have you come to your conclusion? Well, I came to this conclusion, uh, you know, based upon experiences that we're having with clients in the field. And it's not just one or two, it's, you know, several. Um, we're starting to see clients insisting in some cases on developing their own software, where in the past we would have, you know, strongly urged them to consider a commercial solution. Right. Um, it's, it, but this is, this is some kind of stuff that in many ways you would have thought would have been commodity in the first place, isn't it? But is it special circumstances that are driving these changes? Uh, in some cases, it's special uh, circumstances. But like I said, in, in most cases, um, there are commercial solutions out there. It's not just very unique custom needs. It's things that in the past we would have expected. There's no way we would recommend a custom solution here. Right. I mean, right, I, I right. can give you some. I can give you some examples, like I outlined in the post, yeah. if you like. Yeah. 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 By all means, let's walk through it. So right. So you know, sometime you know, fairly recently, we are doing a uh, we're doing a software evaluation for um, a manufacturing company or actually a distributor that had a, a custom proposal system. And so the question was, should we replace that along with the ERP system? And it's very clearly they needed a new ERP system and that was not gonna be a custom solution. It was gonna be a real ERP system. And so the question is, well, what about this custom proposal system? Should this be in or out? And so my first reaction is, hey, there's CPQ solutions out there. You know, there's hun literally hundreds of them for just about every industry. So I went into it when we, you know, started this thinking, okay, that's, that's definitely something we can eliminate a custom system. It's good, yeah, it's good right? <laughs> and then, yeah. so we had the client demo the system to us. And I said, my gosh, this is incredible. It was so, first of all, this is a complex high tech business, right? So their sales proposals are quite elaborate, right? For technical okay. specifications, features, options, and so on. And when I saw what they had done, it was so specific to their business that if they had gone with, you know, Aptus or some other, you know, sophisticated configured of, you know, CPQ system, it would have taken them, you know, at least a year just to configure it for that business and probably still wouldn't exactly match what they needed. So, you know, they can, you know, they convinced me at that point, you know, hey, there's no need to replace the system. It's working. It's a good system. You're not paying any license fees. You're not paying any annual maintenance. You're not paying any subscription. And you've got a small team of developers that uh, that can maintain this. So why not, you know, why not continue with that? 
Um, and so that's another, what they decided to do, yeah? At this point, yes. I mean, they, they could undo that, that decision, but it's one less piece of software that needs to be replaced. We can focus, you know, the new implementation effort on, you know, general ledger and, you know, inventory and things like that. We've got another client that has implemented, it's a large a retailer, very large, and they have a commercial uh, warehouse execution system. Mm-hmm. And uh, very sophisticated, very impressive warehouse operations distribution center. And they said, oh, by the way, we're going to, you know, take this in-house and rewrite it ourselves. I said, why? They said, well, when we reconfigure the warehouse or we have issues in the warehouse, it takes the vendor and the systems integrator too long to respond. So we're just going to take, you know, and it's just not, it's not easy to work with the systems integrator or the vendor. We're just going to write it ourselves and take it in house. Right. So it's like, that would not have been something I would expect a client to do. Right. When there are commercial uh, systems and, you know, I, I give several other, you know, case studies here. And one is, you know, I don't know if you saw in the wall street journal, there was a case study about six months ago about Dick's sporting goods. So this is a public case study. They are nearly complete with a program to replace all of their e-commerce front end and their inventory management system on the back end with in-house built software. And the article goes into the reason for that, you know, quicker response to changes in demand, improved productivity, better customer experience. And I forget, I think the CIO did this at another uh, company as well. So he's bringing this in here. So, you know, one data point is not a trend, but you start to see the same thing over and over. And I'm just seeing uh, clients you know, more willing to take the build route instead of the buy route for some of these solutions. You know, it's interesting this, um, Frank, because I mean, even in our little business, I've had that internal debate going between, you know, what passes for my brain um, for at (laughs) least the last 18 months, right? It's like, do do should we build this or should we buy it? And the question always comes back to, do you want to be in the software business? Right. And the, the truth is, the truth is, I probably, I probably ought to be in a way, because because there are so many um, things that we want to do that are either difficult, they or they take a huge amount of time, or the functionality just isn't there, or whatever the hell, you know. And you would have thought that, you know, with with digital publishing being as old as it is at this point in time. Why why are the solutions so goddamn difficult, right? And and so you know it's it's in, extraordinarily tempting to say you know what I'm going to hire a few engineers and just do the damn thing, you know? We 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 can't be offline, right? We we have to keep right. running, so we right. have to keep running with whatever the hell it is that we have. Now right. in our particular case, we chose to re-platform. But what I said to the guys was, I said you've got to understand we're going to be moving from good old WordPress to uh, good old Drupal. That that is really like going from uh, <laughs> out of the frying it, pan like, into the fire. <laughs> no, 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 no. It, it, it's better. It's better than that, Frank. It's like going from QuickBooks to SAP ECC in one jump. <laughs> oh, okay, okay, okay. I, I get you. Yeah, and, so and you a whole another set of problems. Well, it, 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 the reason for that is, is is quite straightforward, and that is is that you know despite all the the hype that you hear about WordPress and that it runs about a quarter of the um, media in the world, the truth of the matter is is, is, a, is that unless you have really good engineering resource of your own that can dig into the code, it's it's up fundamentally a small 
business solution. It does not scale. And so what we were finding was that, so what we were finding was that seventy percent of our uh, uh, monthly costs were basically going to keep the bloody lights on and trying to keep the thing running, right? That's right. Yeah, I we haven't got we haven't got a huge site. I mean, it's what nine thousand pages. That's not big by media standards. So we were faced with that. So it's like, okay, well, you know, I know that the Washington Post sells their shit, right? Okay, I don't have half a million to spend on that. Right? I know that I know that WordPress has their own very controlled version of what they do. I don't have a quarter of a million to spend on that. So what am I going to do? And and that really means going to something like Drupal, which is extraordinarily performant. I mean, we've we've managed to get massive improvement in in page load speeds, which, as you know, is the number one thing for so, for sites like so ours, there, right? So so there you go. You're another case study. But at the same time, we've had to compromise in a load of areas that we didn't uh, that we didn't expect to have to compromise. And we're also having to take on board additional software that we probably should have done in the first place. Things like digital asset management. I mean, we've all got about 20,000 images and it's a completely out of control media library. You've just got to do it, right? But it means, it means you know, yet another project. You know, what about email newsletters? Yet another project. And it just goes on and on and on. But so I still think that we have a long way to go in terms of getting functionality that would... Um, would help us differentiate further than perhaps we have already done because content is not everything by any stretch of the imagination. Everybody says it is and it isn't. There's a heck of a lot more to it than that. So, I mean, there may well come the day when we end up doing exactly what some of your clients are doing is bite the bullet and hire some guys and just get on with it. But I know it comes with downsides. It's like I'm the only person in the team with enough technical understanding to be able to project manage this, let alone I can't build it. You know, my, my days of coding are well and surely over. Right. Um, but I, but I can project manage it, but my other people can't, right? So you know, if, if I disappear or drop dead or whatever the hell, then it's like, well, who's going to take that one on board? And I guess in the in the build versus buy thing, you, I think you pointed out exactly the same problem, isn't it? It's like you have skills, but they're in the hands of just a few people, perhaps. How do, how do firms overcome that problem? What do they do? How do they overcome that problem? Yeah. Well, that's a very good point, and it's the issue that I have seen with custom systems is that if you're going to go down that route to build a solution yourself instead of relying on a custom uh, ISV to do that, uh, instead of relying on an ISV to do that, you're going to have to make a commitment to maintain a development staff to maintain that application. Someone recently in response to this post sent me an email and indicated that he knows a company that had developed, I forget what the application was, but they developed it from scratch and it was a competitive advantage to them. Uh, but they had to give it up recently because the one developer who was maintaining it internally um, either retired or was no longer able to do it for, for some reason. So, I mean, it shows that you can do this and there are definitely advantages and a trend uh, in favor of building over buying, uh, but you're going to have to make an organizational commitment to maintain that application. Right, right, right. Do, do, do you still favor uh, buy versus build, or do you think it's a case of customers are now speaking, um, and that's the way we have to go? I, I think it's, you know, as I explained to someone, uh, a client the other day, I said, you shouldn't write a general ledger. Okay, so I use my left, that's on my left hand, right, all the way over to the left. On the far mm -hmm. end of the right, you know, we had their custom warehouse management system or a custom, you know, warehouse execution system. I said, so that's clearly something that there's a strong business case to bring that in house. But there's a whole bunch of stuff in the middle 
right? So it's the, the, the question is not on the far left or the far right. The question is, where do you draw the line in between? And that line, I'm saying, is shifting a little bit more to the build side instead of the buy side. So it's not all one or all the other, but there's a shift, right? It's like a pendulum starting to move the other direction. I'm not sure if you mentioned this or not, but do you think that there's possibly um, buyer fatigue among those who have gone to passive software? Uh, definitely. Right. I, I, you know, I mean, I go into this in the post, right, which is on the Strativa blog. We'll put it on computer economics uh, shortly. But right now, if you want to see it, it's at the top of the Strativa blog, strativa.com slash blog. You know, p- package software has become enormous, in many cases, become enormously expensive, either in terms yeah. of license fees or uh, subscription costs. I have another client. It's not one that's developed a lot of custom software for their internal use, although they do some development for their clients. That's paying an extraordinarily high subscription rate for one of the major cloud vendors who you can imagine who that might be. I mean, it's just, you know, we went in there to do an assessment on their a number of things, including their IT spending. And, and that stuck out like a sore thumb. It's like, why are you spending this much money? And so we've been asking the same thing. <laughs> you know, it's like, so, um, you know, what's the value you're getting back from that? And I think for so many years, the commercial software vendors have gained power and influence that they've, you know, leveraged that position into, you know, like you say, wallet fracking, or Brian Summers says wallet fracking, you know, squeezing as much money as you can out of each client. And at some point, something's got to give. You know, a few years back, I came across an individual who was uh, running um, a little little digital media um, agency, yeah? And I think there were something like 10 people involved, so very tiny. And I said, oh, well, you know, what do you use for your, you know, usual sort of question, what do you use for things like your front office and all the rest of this? Oh, yeah, we're a Salesforce house. I said, really? And they said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cost us 45000 a year, but you know what? It runs our business. And wow. I said, really? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I said, Rick, wow. I said you, you're really sure of that? And they said, yeah. I, I, I just found that just... Incredible. Well, it works. <laughs> it, it works. Apparently, it works for some organizations, but I'm seeing an increasing number that are questioning the value for that. Right. Well, understandably so. Understandably so. Who do you think, just, just sticking with that at the moment, who do you think has one of the better business models out there or more, let's say, customer-friendly business models? Uh, he, I think I know yes. the answer. Right. So in the blog post I mentioned, I, I'm hesitant to name names because I'll leave somebody out if I try to make a list. But let me just describe them to you. And if you know the market, you can pretty much guess who they are. Imagine right. someone that sells a uh, integrated suite for a very low cost per user and provides mm-hmm. an incredibly amount of functionality to cover that and mm-hmm. um, does not charge an arm and a leg for adding additional users. Um, in fact, encourages more usage of the system. I mean, that would be one characteristic, right? You find, you know, another organization that is not, you know, constantly finding ways to increase either the maintenance fees or the subscription based upon your, you know, accidentally using some functionality that you weren't entitled to. Think, think about a vendor that doesn't um, charge you indirect access fees, right? Think about a mm-hmm. vendor that doesn't have a habit of suing their customers. I mean, these are the kind of behaviors 
that our, the buyers are growing increasingly, you know, uh, tired of. And, you know, vendors that don't do those things are, I call them the good guys, right? So there certainly are, I would say, vendors that have been enlightened, that really seek mm. to add more value, that are not trying to leverage their power over their installed base. I mean, the, the problem with like take ERP systems is these things are incredibly entrenched in organization. So, you know, the old joke about, you know, then you were a prospect, now you are a customer. You know, I mean, that really holds in the ERP space, right? Because, <clears throat> you know, the vendors will do a lot. They'll really go the extra mile to try to win a, you know, a customer. But for a lot of them, once you have that customer, you know, it's very hard to switch. And it, it just the, the, the balance of power between buyer and seller is really lopsided in the favor of the seller. So I think there needs to be a new attitude among commercial software vendors if they're going to expect to retain their market share with buyers that increasingly have options. It's interesting that, it's interesting that you say that because um, I had a little bit of a back and forth today with one of our mutual friends about this. You know, I, I, I cannot for the life of me understand why companies think it's impossible to take uh, a back-end ERP out and, and not replace it. I don't, I, I cannot understand the logic of that. And the reason I say that is because when you talk about ERP, what are we really talking about? We're talking about most of the time general ledger, ARAP, HR, what, anything else in particular? That's kind of about it, isn't it? Payroll, yeah. I, I was trained as an accountant, and the first thing that I learned was that Luca Pacioli invented double entry bookkeeping. In other words, debit's <laughs> on the left, credit's on the right. Seven hundred years ago, yeah. And as far as I'm aware, I don't know of any other system that's going to be invented anytime soon, and certainly not in my lifetime. So, right. if, if that's the way it's been for those number of years, why is it so hard to get rid of this stuff? Why is it so hard to replace it? What is so unique about your bloody debits and your bloody credits that you, that you don't think you can take it out? I mean, that's that's the question I ask all the time. I don't think I've ever received a satisfactory answer. I mean, well, it ha it has to. I mean, it's 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 one of those things. If you do it successfully, you're no farther ahead than before you started, right? So all you did was change the plumbing. It's like it's like a house, right? With plumbing, you don't you don't look at changing out the plumbing in your house or the electrical, you know, conduit and so on, because if it's working, what's the point? Just because there's something better, right? It's only when it's really broken that you end up having to replace, you know, infrastructure pieces like that. And, and accounting systems have become almost like infrastructure. So they become embedded in business processes. People are trained, they have processes, procedures, and so on. In a large company, it's really painful to start ripping that stuff out and replacing it with something else that at the end of the day, you're still doing double entry bookkeeping. So I think that's Part of it is just simple inertia, and what's the benefit of doing that? And and, and that's the leverage that the, the the vendors have is that there's a lock-in. They know the customers are not likely. You have to get really in pretty deep pain to want to switch that stuff out. Well, even even if you're being wallet cracked along the way, even if if that's happening, that's, yeah. that's well, that's the point. Is that at some point, you know, push comes to shove, and the client when he's faced with another you know, reason to change is not as he's more open to switch to either a different commercial solution or at the edge cases, look to custom write something. I mean, here's the other thing that occurred to me, you know, recently I wrote a long blog post on my, you know, lessons learned from my first job in IT, right? Oh, okay. Yeah, that was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Loved it. At, yeah, at Macy's, right? I, I learned to program at Macy's, my first job out of college. But the thing I, I was thinking back there, 
there was no package software. I mean, I mean, they wrote everything from payroll to general ledger. It was all custom systems. My second job, uh, same thing. It was only when I got to my third job that I ran into my first commercial software package. So it's not as if we didn't do this before. And I'm not suggesting we go out and write custom GL systems or custom payroll. That would just be goofy. But, you know, end user organizations can write software. It's not unheard of. We used to, I did it. We did it, you know, years ago. So I think there could be a comeback on, you know, like I say, at the edge cases. Interesting. I mean, I, you know, we, we can all share those kind of stories, can't we? I mean, I was, of course. I mean, I was writing data, I was writing databases back in the, back in the 80s, and, and not just one database. I mean, it was about four or five that I was using at the time. There you um, go. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, it, was, it took time, yeah. Uh, but you know what? I got stuff that works. <laughs> that's right. I think that's, I think that's what we're all looking for, is stuff that works at the end of the day. What's been the reaction to this, this story of yours? I mean, I personally found it really, really fascinating. With, uh, but what's been the reaction well, <laughs> hasn't been the, the reaction is very predictable, right? So analysts or, um, you know, IT executives on the buyer side have been almost universally echoing, you know what, you know what, this is really touching a nerve and yeah, we can see this and we agree with it and so on. The only pushback I get is from vendors <laughs> or analysts that work with vendors. Right. So it's, mm. it, it comes down like, you know, along party lines, as we like to say. Right. So <laughs> yeah, I can, you can tell, you know, if an analyst is working mostly on the with the vendor community, you know, they're going to come down, you know, not really liking what I'm saying here. Our business is so predictable, isn't it? <laughs> well, you know, we're just having fun here. And I think sometimes it, it helps to, to take a contrarian view and say, you know, the conventional wisdom, and we've been doing this for years. When we go into a new company to help them select software, say, hey, eliminate as much custom software as possible. Um, adopt integrated suites where you can because of the built-in integration. Uh, buy instead, uh, build instead of buy because you're not in the software business. And, and and that that advice still applies even with the clients I just mentioned. You know, we're in there arguing in some cases that they're pushing too hard for you know, you know, building their own and they should consider commercial software. So it's not like we're always going to favor buy over build, but. Sometimes you have to step back and say, does the old advice still apply in every case? And I think the answer is no, it doesn't always apply. I think the, I think the most interesting thing that you said in your um, thing that you about the whole Macy's thing, for instance, was that back in those days, there was a genuine sense of apprenticeship and of mentoring. I don't know whether package software is partly to blame in, in this context, but I mean, basically, if you want to set up a system, what do you do? It's read the, read the manual, right? That's pretty much it. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah. what, what do people actually learn? I don't know what they actually learn. And, and I, I get the sense among some people, um, very much the younger generations, is they, they don't want to learn. <laughs> so maybe we're going to be stuck with a lot of this package stuff for a long, long time to come. And it's only old farts like you and I who remember these kind of things and can see that there's a possibly an alternative. What do you say there, Frank? Or, or am I being... Well, you know, nobody wants, nobody wants to go back to the past. I would certainly not recommend that. Uh, but we got to learn yeah. from the past, right? we got to learn to what yeah. life was like and how we got to the place where we are. I mean, the other thing that I um, kind of enjoyed thinking about is just the whole 
you know, history of the commercial software business. So, you know, we call them ISVs, right? Which means independent software vendor, ISV. Mm. My, my question is, what's the word independent refer to? Most people don't yeah. know. I, independent yeah. from IBM is what it means because the ISV right. industry started when the Department of Justice in the U.S. forced IBM to unbundle software from hardware. And the right. biggest impact, what everybody thinks of, of course, is that it meant they couldn't sell MVS or, you know, ZOS or whatever it's called, operating system, you know, bundle it with the mainframe. They had to make it available for customers to purchase, which guess what? Opened up the whole plug compatible mainframe business like Amdahl, Hitachi and the rest. And suddenly IBM had to compete for hardware. Now I was in IT running mainframes at the time and I saw what that did to IBM. You know, suddenly they got a lot more flexible on hardware deals because Amdahl was sitting there, you know, the IT director had a Amdahl cup on his desk, right? <laughs> Which sent the message that, look, you're not, you know, you're not flexible. I got another choice here. And I worked for yeah, my yeah, second yeah. job was with a customer that had Amdahl and IBM. We had one of each mainframe, right? Just to keep the IBM guy honest. Well, the <laughs> other, yeah, well, the other effect of that was that application <laughs> software was now unbundled. So IBM used to offer application software as well as operating system software at a greatly reduced price, if not free. Well, when they now had to unbundle that, it opened up the whole door to guess who? Companies like SAP, which started right around that time in Germany, offering, as you know, applications on the IBM mainframe. So it launched a whole ISV industry. But now, guess what? You can buy Dell servers, you can buy compact, well, compact, you can buy HP servers, you know, you can buy white box servers, you know, hardware now has become a commodity. And guess what? The software now is where the value is, which is why all the hardware vendors want to get into software, have gotten into software. IBM, the huge software business, right? And services right. business, as our friends uh, working over there know. Um, you know, HP had this big move wanting to get into software. Why? Because that's where the money is. Well, that shows right. you where the balance of power is shifting now to not to the hardware vendors, but to the ISVs. That's right. The whole thing is shifted. Put, I know you hate doing this, Frank, um, but put your put your predictive hat on. And so, uh, what do you think will happen over the course of say the next five years? I think you're already starting to see this. You're starting to see a blend of you know, custom development on commercial platforms. So again, I, I hate to I hate to name names here, but let's just take Salesforce and just such a you know large example, right? They have a whole platform that comes with the um, with the product, and yeah. I think you're going to see more of that, and you're already seeing it. I mean, Microsoft has its platform. You know, Oracle has its platform. SAP has its platform. Workday has got a, the genesis of a platform. You know, they all have platforms. I, I like, you know, to say something good about Salesforce is they're really, on that platform, they're really agnostic. They don't care what yeah. you build. They don't even care what partners build. I mean, I know partners that have built um, products, AppExchange partners that actually compete with Salesforce CRM. <laughs> Think <laughs> about that. They don't care. Right? right, which is great. Right. So I think there is an opportunity if the commercial software vendors want to stay relevant, they've got to give customers the opportunity and the way to build software on their platforms, but not charge them an arm and a leg to do it, right? And I right. think that's where some of the guys like, you know, those platform fees for Salesforce can get pretty expensive, especially if you use Salesforce objects, 
Okay, so now I'm getting right. into some of the details here, right? Now you're starting to pay actually for a sales cloud license if you're using the, you know, the customer or the account object. Right. So right. Um, it's getting a, that's a little too much detail, but you understand what I'm saying is that it's got to be done in a cost-effective manner. Otherwise, the customer is going to say, "Hey, heck with this! I'm going to Amazon. I'll build on their cloud. You know, all I'm paying is the you know the the platform." you know, fee. I'm not playing all this other stuff. So that's the competitive threat is from the infrastructure, cloud infrastructure providers that just offer a pure platform and they're not really trying to tie you in with an application it's themselves. One of the things that um, I argued uh, a little while back was that if you're going to go down this kind of platform play route and open up uh, solutions, would it not be better to simply charge for API access rather than other other methods of, of doing it? Um, have you heard anything along those lines at all? Because it's, it always strikes me that it's the API that provides the value because it provides the gateway, if you will, from one place to another, doesn't it? In, an API into like a financial system? Is that what you're talking about? Or well, I'm, I'm not really I'm not really talking about any system in particular. But you, you, nowadays, okay, nowadays if, if if I want to do integration, what I'm looking for is where's my API access? Because that's what all my services people want, right? And what do those APIs look like? What kind of access do they give me? Do they give me sufficient? Do they give me more than I need? Whatever it is, you know, please don't, please make sure that I've got enough access to the appropriate hooks. That's what they really care about. Well, and, well, and, I, made, and, I, I made, yeah, I made that point in the blog post is that, you know, what are the factors that are, what's changing the picture now that you can do more custom development? And one of the first thing I said was microservices architecture and web APIs. You know, the, the software vendors did that because it made their software easier to maintain and easier to integrate, you know, both internally and with partners, right? Well, guess what? Right. Customers can use those same APIs to, and write to them and build their own extensions. And, you know, the smart vendors realize that's, you know, that's a value add in itself, but it did open the door to make, instead of the old SOAP or, you know, batch interfaces and so on, uh, the web APIs and microservices architecture makes software more digestible and easier to integrate with and build those extensions. So is that, is that something that you're encouraging your, your customers to, to think about as well? Absolutely. And the smarter right. ones, th those that have some software development capability, I mean, they're telling us that. You know, and, and we say, you know, every every business is a technology business. Well, if that's true, then why can't they write some of their own software their, right. for their back office processes? Don't tell me, right. don't tell me you're not in the software business. Therefore, you should use commercial software, and then turn around and say, oh, every company's a technology company. Well, which is it? <laughs> Are you not yeah, a yeah, software yeah, yeah. business or are you a technology company? Some people yeah. try to have it both ways, right? right. <laughs> yeah. And, and clients have software development, small software development groups. They do, more and more. So I guess the bottom line here is, Frank, it, we live, as always, in interesting times, yeah? And, you do. Uh, and, and there's a lot more to be seen, right? Yes. Okay. See if this trend, we'll see if this trends. Uh, let me just add one more thing. I, I didn't mention this. In our computer economics annual IT spending survey, we do yeah. see this. Over the last three years, we've seen a small shift in the percentage of applications that are uh, custom built versus packages. Right. 
Now, our right. research group here says, you know, don't don't call that a trend yet. It's only three years. Let's see if this continues. But we do see movement in that direction. Well, I'm certainly going to keep an eye on it, so, Frank. And um, I thank you for the time that you've given me on this one, because I think it's a fascinating topic. Um, and it's one that's going to scare the bejesus out of some people <laughs> and delight others, isn't it? That's good. Yeah, yeah. we need that. All right, Dennis. Thanks okay. so much. Uh, take care. Cheers, man. Take care. Uh, bye-bye. Bye.